0: These men who understood the times and what to do about it were joined with their families. Their families joined them in understanding the times and what to do about it. Their families, their kinsmen, everyone under their headship joined them in their understanding of the times and what to do about it. Who were these sons from Issachar? Were We're well past uh, the time of the man who who this tribe is named after. The sons of Issachar are the distant descendants of the man, Issachar, who was the ninth son of Jacob. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Issachar was a son of Jacob, the ninth son. And these sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles are his distant descendants, his relatives. Where were they from? Well, at this time, these men, these sons of Issachar, were of the tribe of Issachar that settled in the northern region of the Promised Land. When When the land was divided up after they entered in, these sons of Issachar... Uh, the tribe of Issachar was given this territory near the north of the Promised Land, west of the Jordan River, near where it empties into the Sea of Galilee. This territory later became part of the independent northern kingdom of Israel, which consisted of ten tribes. So at this time, the, the kingdom of Israel is united All 12 tribes are together. They were together under King Saul. And now they're going to uh, remain together under the rule of King David. But eventually that united kingdom of Israel was divided. And we're going to talk about that shortly. But as of right now, in this context, 1 Chronicles 12... These uh, sons of Issachar are part of the United Kingdom of Israel, but eventually they're going to branch off and become part of the independent northern kingdom. So that's who they were and where they were from. What did they know? Well, our text makes it pretty obvious. They knew, they understood the times Not just what time it was, what hour and minute of the day, but they understood the times. They understood the era in which they were living. They understood the culture. They understood the times in which they were living. They knew, they understood the times. What time was it? What time was it? Well... Simply put, it was time for God's anointed king, David, to take the throne and shepherd his people righteously. King Saul, the first king of Israel at this point, has died. He fell on his own sword. He died. God removed him from the throne. And now it was time for God's anointed king, David, to take the throne of Israel and not rule the people of Israel, but to shepherd the people of Israel. Yes, David would be their king, but he would be their shepherd. He would guide them. He would direct them into the will of God by uh, promoting the law of God and the worship of God alone. That's how he would shepherd them righteously. Solomon had a tendency towards sin, and we know the story of David if we've been in church any time. He sinned too, but he was always remorseful. He repented of his sin. Solomon didn't. Solomon made excuses for his sin. But Solomon had a propensity towards sin and idol worship. He was concerned about what the surrounding nations thought of him, and so he acted accordingly. So now it was time for God's anointed king to sit on the throne of Israel and shepherd the people and to shepherd them righteously. What needed to be done? Our text tells us that they understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. What did the sons of Issachar know? What needed to be done? Well, history tells us that when, it, when it's time for a new king to take the throne, that all the people who were subject to the old king had to defect from the old king and pledge fealty, pledge allegiance to the new king and help that new king uh, liberate anything that was uh, you know overtaken And so that is exactly what happened. Near the end of the reign of King Saul, uh, Jerusalem was overtaken by the Jebusites. And so the sons of Issachar knew that it was time for David to rise to the throne, and they knew that the mighty men of Israel, the army of Israel, was going to have to take up arms against the Jebusites and liberate Jerusalem, which was under their occupation, So that David, the new shepherd king, could establish that city, the city of God, as the capital city of the kingdom of Israel, the people of God. 1 Chronicles 12.38 tells us that the mighty men of Israel came to the region of Hebron fully determined to make David king over all of Israel. They were fully determined. That phrase means they were ready to act. The sons of Issachar knew what time it was. They knew what to do. And then the mighty men showed up and said, all right, let's do this thing. They were ready to act. They were fully determined. If God's will was going to be carried out in the nation, three things were needed. People that knew what time it was, people that knew what to do, and people that were ready to do it. And 1 Chronicles 12, 38 tells us that when these men were fully determined to make David their king, all the rest of Israel, all their kinsmen, all their families, all their descendants were also, listen, of one mind to make David their king. Three types of people. People that knew what time it was, what to do about it, and were ready to act. And in this context, it was men, sons of Issachar, who understood the times and what to do, and the mighty men from all the other tribes that were ready to do it. And when those three things were in place, knowing the time, what to do, ready to act, Everybody else was united with one mind to make David their king. Pretty amazing. Incredible story. We could spend hours this morning talking about all the amazing details of this story and what happened. You can go ahead and read it for yourself today or this week sometime. But I wanted to point out this one particular tribe the tribe of Issachar, the descendants of the ninth ninth son of Jacob, and how they were described in this passage as men who knew the times and what to do about it, and how they were closely linked with men who were ready to act. But something changed with the sons of Issachar. Something changed with the mighty men of Israel. Over time, this description of them changed. Not much is said about the sons of Issachar in the Bible. In fact, the tribe of Issachar is only mentioned a handful of times from Genesis to Revelation. And the only time they were ever described as men who knew what time it was and what to do about it is during the time of David's ascent to the throne. It's sad that this description of them didn't follow them through the rest of the biblical text. Just this one time, they were mentioned, or sorry, when they're mentioned, are described as men who knew what time it was and what to do about it. Sadly, something changed. With these men, with the sons of Issachar and the mighty men. What was it? What changed? Well, no one singular event caused this change. This change was incremental. So small were the changes that they were almost imperceptible. In fact, it took about 120 years for this change that I'm about to describe. It took about 120 years for the nation of Israel, for the sons of Issachar and the mighty men of Israel to change from who they were when David was ascending to the throne to who they were when King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel were on the throne of Israel. You see, it started when the sons of Issachar got on the wrong side of history after the kingdom split. Let's talk. Remember I told you where the sons of Issachar were from. They settled in the north of Israel, west of the Jordan, right around the Sea of Galilee, right in the heart of the northern part of Israel. Well, we have King David and he ruled the people righteously and his son Solomon after him was also a wise and relatively righteous king although he had his peccadilloes. He loved women and, and uh, he was led astray by them. But he was by and large a righteous king who actually built the temple of God in the city of God. But the son after Solomon, Rehoboam, when he ascended to the throne, he was a young buck, maybe a bit of a punk, if you will, although the Bible doesn't describe him that way. And see, what was tradition was when you took the throne, you inherited your father's advisors and they advised you so that there would be a peaceful transition of power. And then eventually you would, as a king, appoint your own advisors and replace the previous ones. It's a good system. It was God's system. Rehoboam didn't like God's system and he immediately appointed his buddies to the role of advisor and he, he... disregarded the advice of his father's advisors foolish mistake I mean these men were appointed by what we have called many times the wisest man in the bible the wisest man in history besides Jesus he appointed these men these advisors to advise him and and Solomon's son Rehoboam said nah I'm not going to do what they advise I'm going to appoint my buddies and they're going to They're just going to be yes men. They're just going to agree with everything I say. Well, it wasn't long after that appointment that the kingdom split. Kingdom divided. And the sons of Issachar and the the 12 tribes located to the north of Judah and Benjamin, they split. They said, no way, we don't want Rehoboam as our king. And I'm paraphrasing, and I'm condensing a really long story. And so they decided they were going to make this fellow Jeroboam their king. And Jeroboam was apparently a good choice, but as soon as he took the throne, they realized they had made a huge mistake, but it was too late. The sons of Issachar forgot what time it was. Uh, You've heard the old adage, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. The sons of Issachar, just a few generations after David, forgot that God's promise for a righteous king on the throne of Israel was made to David and his line and no one else's. They got on the wrong side of history when the kingdom divided, and they went with the tribes to the north they appointed a new king who wasn't God's king, who didn't have God's promise and God's blessing attached to him. They forgot the past and the promises of the past and the required obedience to God that brings about blessing. They forgot the promise of God, the blessings of God. And when they appointed their own king, that king Immediately instituted the worship of Baal and never again did Israel have a righteous king on its throne now the, the kingdom to the south consisting of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin they had alternating righteous and wicked kings but the kings to the north were wicked the most wicked of all was King Ahab. But we'll get there. We're talking about that incremental change, that subtle change that happened so slowly, it was almost imperceptible. It started when the sons of Issachar and the tribes to the north got on the wrong side of history, got on the wrong side of God. And then the change continued with an incremental increase in idol worship. The idol worship that Jeroboam instituted they got better at, and they did more and more, and they incorporated into their worship of Yahweh to the point where their worship of Baal and the other gods superseded their worship of the God of Israel, the God who chose them. The change continued when they began to use unjust scales, something God hates. The change continued when they pursued ill-gotten gain, when they stopped using the money and the prosperity that God had blessed them with to advance God's kingdom and God's cause and they hoarded it for themselves and they fell in love with it rather than the one who provided it. The change continued with outright disobedience to God's law, calling it old-fashioned and outdated. The change in Israel continued to the point where they completely disregarded God's word and God's prophets. All the while this incremental change was happening, the sons of Issachar, who at one point knew the times and what to do, and the mighty men of Israel who were ready to do it, they stood by and did nothing. They stood by and enjoyed the comforts that idol worship and unjust scales and ill-gotten gain and disobedience to God and disregard for His word and His prophets seemed to bring them. And so they did nothing about it. Nothing Necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men. And that's exactly what happened with the sons of Issachar and the mighty men of Israel the nation of israel went from being uh, sorry yeah went from being ruled by a god honoring giant killing man after god's own heart to a sulking wife-ridden man-child who quote did more to arouse the anger of the god of israel than did all the kings of israel before him i'm talking about ahab and this was able to happen because the sons of Issachar and the mighty men did nothing. Just watched it happen. Those men who I said were so united and so sure of God's promise to David that they led the whole nation in unity to make David their king had slowly but surely Forgotten what time it is and what to do about it. And because they forgot, because they stood by and did nothing, the nation was given over. Eventually, the northern kingdom was completely destroyed. It was dispersed and it was exiled to Assyria. And to this day, those tribes have never returned So what time is it now? Remember at the beginning of this message, I talked about time and how before God created time, he had a redemptive timeline in mind. We're on that timeline, friends. So what time is it now? David and the sons of Issachar and the mighty men and all the kings that preceded him. They were on God's timeline, and we're on God's timeline. What time is it right now? What time is it on God's redemptive timeline? Well, we are in what is known as the age of grace, where Jesus is reigning on the throne of his father David, where Jesus is reigning on earth through the church, And we're living in a time when everything is being placed under Jesus' rule, being placed under his feet as he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. That's where we are on God's redemptive timeline. That's where we are in this part of the story. earthly King, but we're being ruled, ruled by, by the, king the King of Kings, king. Jesus. Jesus, descended from the tribe the lineage of David himself, the fulfillment of God's promise to David that there would always be a king on his throne. But Jesus, the King of Kings, is ruling in the world today through his church because he lives in us and reigns in us. And while, and while we are we living in the Everything is being placed under his feet, under his authority, under his headship. The last thing to be put under his feet is going to be death. That's at the end of the timeline. Right now, people are still dying. Remember I said time's eventually going to run out on us. And that's important for us to remember because we have some things to do in the meantime. But right now, we're living in this age of grace where God is saving by grace through faith where Jesus is reigning, where everything is being put under his feet, and where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so if that's what time it is right now, then what should we in 2023 be doing about it? What needs to be done right now? If that's what time it is, what do we have to do? Well, we need to keep the Great Commission and fulfill the Great Commandment. Keep the great commission. Sorry, keep the great commandment and fulfill the great commission. How? By loving God and others and by taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. And that starts at home. It starts at home with men, with husbands, and with fathers. It starts at home with men keeping the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission. It starts with men knowing what time it is and what to do about it. So to this point, we've asked ourselves, what time is it? We've determined that we are on God's redemptive timeline. We've learned something from people who were on the timeline Thousands of years ago, we've learned from the sons of Issachar and the mighty men of Israel. We've learned from their mistakes. We've asked ourselves, what time is it today? What needs to be done right now? Talk is great, but we need an action plan. We need something to do. What are we going to do, men? What are we going to do, husbands? Fathers, how are we going to act on what we've learned today? Well, step one, we have to learn to discern the times for ourselves. Men, husbands, fathers, learn how to tell time. How do you learn how to tell time in this day and age? Read this book. Get into this book. Read it. I don't understand it, Pastor Matt. I don't have time to, to study it. It doesn't make sense. It goes over my head. I don't care. Read it. Read it. God honors the reading of his word. And he, by his Holy Spirit, is going to teach you. If you'll discipline yourself to read this, the Holy Spirit is going to lead you into truth. If you don't know where to start, start with Romans chapter 1 today. You're going to read Romans chapter 1 and you're going to think you're reading the newspaper. Okay? Romans chapter 1 is what time it is today in our nation and in our culture. Read Romans 1 and figure out what time it is. Pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. Pay attention to what's going on in your marriage and in your families. Pay attention to what's going on at work and at school. Wherever you are, men, husbands, wives, uh, fathers, sorry. Wherever you are, pay attention. And once you've figured out what time it is, you need to reclaim your authority. You need to reclaim your headship. That authority and headship was given to you by God it was a part of God's design in the Garden of Eden when he made them male and female in his image. And he made the husband to be the head of the home, to have authority in the home and in the family. Many men today have given up their authority and headship. They've been lied to and told that their masculinity is somehow toxic, that if they act on their instincts that, uh, that they are... Uh, that they are toxic or that they're misogynistic. There is such a thing as uh, misogyny. uh, And there is such a thing, I would say, as uh, toxic masculinity. But that's way out there somewhere. Guys, if if you're standing on the authority of God's word and you're the priest of your home and the head of your marriage... You don't have to worry about toxic masculinity. You don't have to worry about misogyny. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, you can't do those things. Oh, yeah, you'll be tempted to. You'll be tempted to, but you can't do it. If you're doing it God's way, you aren't going to be led astray. So reclaim your authority. Reclaim your headship. When you have that authority and headship, don't you dare lord it over your wife or your children. Amen. Don't do that. If that's what you're doing, if that's what you think I'm promoting today, you're not hearing me, and you, you misunderstood. You see, when we reclaim this authority and headship, we are now called to love like Christ loved. We are called to love with our whole being, to the point where we're willing to lay ourselves down for our wife and for our children. We're willing to love them the way Christ loved the church. Amen. Love your wife that way, men. As the head of the home, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. And then train your children to fear the Lord, to have a reverence for the Lord, to love him with all their innermost being. So step one, discern the times. Figure out what time it is by reading the book. And after you get into this book a little bit, you're going to realize that you need to reclaim your authority and headship in your marriage and in your home. Reclaim it, then love your wife and train your children. That's step one. Step two, pick a fight. Pick a fight. Men, husbands, fathers... Be the ones to tell the next generation what time it is, but more importantly, be the ones to show them what to do about it by doing it. Okay? That's that's good. Maybe you were raised by a dad that said, do as I say, not as I do. We need to be dads, we need to be husbands, we need to be men who say to the next generation, do as I do. Follow me as I follow Christ. We need to be the example. Not just telling them what the problem is and what to do about it, but actually doing something about it. Don't just identify the problems. Be a part of the solution. Don't just be the proverbial complaints box where you Have a complaint and you submit it and you don't do anything about it. Don't just identify problems. Be part of the solution. Be part of the solution in your marriage. Don't just tell your wife the problems you have with her. And I don't advise ever doing that. (laughs) Don't just recognize the problems in your uh, finances or your bank account or your budget or whatever. Don't just... Recognize problems, actually be part of the solution. Be part of the solution, be present. Pick a fight and fight it. One of my favorite movies, Braveheart with Mel Gibson, I'm sure you've seen it. It's a movie about William Wallace and the Battle of Stirling Bridge during the war for Scottish independence. And after William Wallace's famous they may take our lives but they'll never take our freedom speech, he rides from the front line where he made that speech over to his two closest friends, Stephen of Ireland and Hamish. And he sidles up beside them on his horse and Stephen of Ireland says, nice speech but now what now what do we do and and william with that smirk looks at his two friends and says lads just be yourselves just be yourselves and then he begins to ride off and his buddy hamish calls out to him he says william where are you going William looks back and responds, I'm going to pick a fight. I'm going to pick a fight. Now, the fight William went to pick was with the British Empire, the tyrannical British Empire that wanted to overtake and overthrow the Scots and colonize them and incorporate them into the empire and take their freedoms from them that was the fight he was going to pick on Sterling Bridge it's a great fight an amazing story we still tell the story of the fight William Wallace picked he picked that fight because he was in a sense a son of Issachar he wasn't a descendant of the ninth son of Jacob but he acted like the sons of Issachar in our text. He knew what time it was and what to do about it and he did something about it and he united united a bunch of ragtag men who were not trained for battle who went into battle with pitchforks and garden hose and some of them had bows and arrows and swords but he led them into a great battle for their freedom. He was a son of Issachar, and he united people around him in action. He picked a fight. He was part of the solution. He spent a lot of time identifying the problems. First part of the movie, he's in the, the pubs, and he's in the villages, and he's going around identifying how bad it's going to be if the empire comes in and takes your farms from you and takes your families from you and conscripts your son into their military and and so he took some time to identify the problem but eventually he took action and that's what I want us to do today men's men husbands fathers I want us to be sons of Issachar I want us to know what time it is and what to do about it I want us to go pick a fight I want us to get a win I love playing to win you I mean, I get sometimes that it's just a game, but I love winning. People say it's just about having fun. Winning's fun. I love when my team wins. It's a blast. (laughs) Absolutely. Listen, we have, like William Wallace, spent time identifying the problems. I've been in your garage, you've been in mine. We've been on the golf course together, around the breakfast table. We've had coffee. We've identified all the problems in Canada. We've identified all the problems with Ottawa, with the school system. We've identified them, and we should and and must continue to. But man, if we're just going to identify the problems, what's the point? We might as well just give into it. Because it will happen. What we've identified will happen unless we do step two. Unless we pick a fight. Now. Mm. Now, men, husbands, dads, before you go picking a fight, let me remind you You're already in one. And you need to win. And it's obvious that that fight you're already in is for your marriage and for your family. Can I remind you today that someone is fighting for your family? Someone's fighting for your family. He wants to destroy your family. He's actually pretty good at doing it. If you look at the statistics, he's got a great track record. He's been pretty successful in recent decades at destroying families. There's someone who's fighting for your marriage, and he's got a 50% success rate. And that success rate doubles in a second marriage. He knows how to win. He's got a good finishing move. He knows how to wear us down on the ropes in the corner. His name is Satan. He's got a battle plan, and he's got a third of the angels on his side that are now demons that are working to destroy families. They're fighting tooth and nail for your family and for your marriage. If someone's going to fight for your family, make sure you're fighting too. Dad, husband, don't just leave it to your wife to fight it. I know she's fighting it. I know she's fighting for your marriage. I know she's fighting for your family. Don't just leave it to her. She's amazing, but she's outnumbered. Until you reclaim your authority and headship and you fight with her, and her with you, she's fighting a losing battle. Oh, you'll probably stay together, I'm sure. I hope. But if you're not fighting, what are you doing? If you're not fighting for her, for your marriage, if you're not fighting for your kids, what are you even doing? What are you wasting your time doing, man? You've been blessed with the most incredible blessing a wife, and children. You're not going to fight for it? While people are fighting for it, your wife's fighting for it, the enemy's fighting for it, you're not going to fight? I got to remind you too, someone's telling your kids what time it is. Remember I said, be the one to tell the next generation what time it is and what to do about it and show them how to do it by doing it yourself. Someone's telling your kids what time it is. They're telling them at school. They're telling them at the library. They're telling them on YouTube, on social media. They're telling them on the playground. Someone's telling your kids what time it is. Make sure you're telling them what time it really is. Make sure you're telling them what time it really is. You know me, you know I'm a wrestling fan. I, I, I'm picturing this fight for our, our, our marriages and, and our families like, like a tag team ladder match. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Tag team ladder match. In a tag team ladder match, the titles are hung above the ring 20 feet. And there's ladders all outside of the ring. And so you start fighting. But in order for you to win the prize, you got to eventually beat your enemy down long enough so you can get out and get a ladder and bring it into the ring, set it up, climb it, and grab those titles. Grab the prize. The fight for your marriage, the fight for your family is just like that. The souls of your children hang in the balance. And if you don't claim them as the head of your home, as the priest of your home, man, husband, father, somebody else is climbing that ladder to snatch them. And if you've watched a ladder match, you know that, you know, the good guy gets halfway up and he's struggling and he's climbing and he's reaching and it's just right there. And then the bad guy, the heel, he comes up and he pulls him down and he beats him up and in the, in the heel, the bad guy, he tries to reach and then the good guy, he pulls him down and beats him with the ladder. I just want to know who's going to win in the tag team ladder match that you and your wife are in. Husband, are you just standing on the ring apron watching the crowd? Are you just standing on the ring apron hoping she's going to get up there and reach those souls of your children? You need to be... If you're not in the, if you're not in the ring already... Husband, you need to be reaching over that rope. You need to be calling out for the hot tag. You need to be calling out, saying, tag me in, babe. Tag me in, I'm ready. And when she hits your hand, you drop in that ring, you fly over that rope. You lay a few clotheslines in, a few haymakers, kick them in the gut in a stone-cold stunner, and you climb up that ladder, man, and you... Get those souls of your children. And you say, yeah, Pastor Matt, it's too late. My kids are like in high school by now. doesn't matter. It's never too late, Dad. If you step up, if you step up as the dad, it's going to make all the difference. I can't promise you the reaction to your children as they get older. Okay? It might take a bit more time. It's going to take a bit longer. It's been my experience I've seen in your lives and in the lives of some of my family members who've walked away. But you keep fighting. Don't you dare give up. It's too important. Eternity, eternity, I want to say is a long time. It's outside of time. Eternity in heaven will be so beautiful. Eternity is going to be amazing. Eternity will make the fight worth it. And if there's anything we can bring into eternity with us from this world, it's our children. And So we need to to pick that fight and we need to fight it. It's the best fight we can fight. There's lots of other fights that we should be fighting as men in our culture today. Fights that we have left other people to fight. Fights that we've completely ignored. Fights that we've stood by and done nothing while it's raged on around us. But the best fight that we can fight is the one we're already in, the fight for our marriage, the fight for our families. And so, guys, if you're not in the fight today, get off the ring apron, get into the ring, and start fighting with your spouse for your marriage and for your family. Now, if you have that fight locked down, if you've been fighting that fight for a long time and and you're good, you know, your marriage is strong, your family is strong, your children are serving the Lord, everything's, you know, as good as it can be, no family's perfect, no marriage is perfect, but you know, you got it locked down, then what you need to do is you need to help somebody else in their fight. You need to help somebody else in their fight for their marriage and for their family. My goodness, don't stand by and point fingers and say, look how they're doing it. Oh, my goodness. Look at their marriage. Look at their kids. No, find a way to help them somehow. Don't just identify their problems. If you see a problem, be a part of the solution. Come alongside of that dad. Come alongside of that mom, that husband, that wife. Come alongside of that young man and mentor them. Do something, guys, to help the next generation fight for their marriages and families. And then the last part of the action plan, and with this I'll close, leave a legacy of faith because nothing else matters. No other legacy you can leave matters. Oh, it's great, I'm sure, to leave an inheritance for your your children of, of money or of property or maybe leave a, a family business to them or something. Those are all amazing things, but in the end they don't matter because they don't end up in eternity with us. The only legacy we can leave that has eternal impact is the legacy of faith. And in light of that, nothing else that you could leave to your children amounts to anything. I don't want to demean it or belittle it, but i gotta tell you remind you that in light of eternity it won't make any difference only the legacy of faith that you leave my dad left an incredible legacy of faith this is my second father's day without him and he talked a lot about his funeral he talked a lot about his legacy and a lot about his funeral even long before he was sick he always had his death date in mind He, by his own personality, was very melancholy. He often thought about the end of his life and how he would be remembered. And he often said to me, Matthew, make sure that at my funeral they know I loved Jesus. He said that to me so many times. Matthew, make sure they know. Make Jesus big. At my funeral... Don't say much about me. Say everything about Jesus. Make him big. Make sure they know that I loved him. That was the legacy of faith he wanted to leave, and and he left it. He left it. He left it on his wife. He left it on his children and grandchildren. He left that legacy of faith and that epitaph. Make Jesus big. Let them know I loved him that I worship only at the feet of Jesus, that it's Jesus only, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, his famous last words to us. That was his epitaph, what he wanted said about him at the end of his life, of his whole life could be summed up in just one phrase. It's a great phrase, but it's not the one I want on my tombstone. The phrase I want on my tombstone, I made it clear to my wife and kids. I wanted to say in big, bold letters, he knew what time it was. He knew what time it was. And by implication, what to do about it. And by implication, he acted on it. That he didn't just identify the problems and how to fix them. But he was part of the solution. Why? For his glory? For mine? No, my goodness. For his glory. For God's glory. For the expansion of his kingdom. Opposition to tyranny is obedience to God. Every time we push back the gates of hell, the dark gates of Mordor, every time we push them back, we advance the cause of Christ. We shed more light in the world. It's what I want said about me. It's what I want on my tombstone. And I want it to be said about you, whether we write it on your stone or not, that's up to you, but I want it to be said about the men of Liberty Church that we knew what time it was. We knew the, the day and age in which we lived. We knew where we were on God's redemptive timeline. And we knew that if that's where we were and where we are, that we better fulfill the great commandment to love God and others, to love our spouse like Christ loves the church, to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, and that we must fulfill Christ's great commission to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as we can. That's what I want us to be known for. I want us to be known for having strong marriages. There's no such thing as a perfect one. I said that. Mine's pretty close because my wife's amazing, but it's still not perfect. There's no perfect family, although my kids are pretty amazing too. Right? Yeah? No perfect marriage, no perfect family, but I want to be known as somebody who fought for it, who did whatever it took. I want us men to be known Uh, in this church, for having strong marriages, strong families, for being heads of our home, for leading our home well, for loving our lives well, for living with them in an understanding way, for being compassionate, for not exasperating our children, but training them up in the way that they should go. I know it sounds impossible, and it is in your own strength, but if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, all you have to do is say yes, because that's the way he's leading you. He's leading you to do those very things. Your human nature, it's leading you to do the exact opposite. Your sin nature is dead and your new nature in Christ is alive. So listen to that Holy Spirit living in your heart. Honor God and make the declaration that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You think about that. Amen. Amen.